Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. On this episode of the MongoDB podcast, we are talking with Shiri Cabral. Shiri is a MongoDB employee. She is a product manager for an app called OFish. OFish was developed for WildAid, and they are a nonprofit. They've got an amazing mission to end illegal wildlife trade in our lifetime. MongoDB's joined the effort through development of OFish, and it's a very cool app. What it does is it replaces the notebooks and paper and pens that the wildlife enforcement agents used to have to use. It's using MongoDB technology to do this, to make sure everything is in sync. It leverages the mobile device's capabilities around geolocation, and it just greatly enhances the efficiency of the agents to help them do their job. Shiri talks to us about what it's like to product manage this app and what it's like to manage an open source project. She's got some great experience to share. I hope you enjoy the episode. This episode is brought to you by MongoDB University. And here's Owen Brazil to tell you a little bit about one of the courses. Hi there. I'm Owen Brazil from MongoDB University. When creating applications, it's important your users have trust that their data is safe by dedicating just one hour of your time to taking our A300 Atlas Security course, you'll gain the skills necessary to ensure best-in-class security for your MongoDB Atlas deployments. Enroll and take the free online course at your convenience at university.mongodb.com. You're listening to the MongoDB Podcast. MongoDB Podcast. Exploring the world of software development, data, and all things MongoDB. And now your hosts, Michael Lynn and Nick Raboy. All right. Uh, Shiri Cabral, welcome to the show. It's good to have you on the show. Uh, why don't you give the audience a little introduction? Who are you and what do you do? Thanks. It's great to be here. Um, I've been at MongoDB since February 2019, so uh, at the time of this recording, just under two years. I'm a product manager. I started in the MongoDB server doing sharding and replication, and then I moved on to product managing the OFish app. Um, my journey to MongoDB was kind of a long journey. I started out my life as a database administrator for MySQL. Um, I spent the better part of two decades learning and growing into a MySQL expert. And it's, you know, it's very powerful and can do a lot of things, but there's a lot of knobs to tweak. And I spent tons of time like writing blog posts, doing presentations at conferences, right? Organizing conferences, podcasting. Um, I produced a podcast, um, you know, over a hundred presentations and stuff. Like I just wanted to grow that pool of database experts and it was a ton of work, but I loved helping people learn. And I didn't have the job of like what we would now call developer advocate. I was just a database administrator who wanted to help other people learn. So that meant that I had a day job doing the hands-on database work as well as all this kind of evangelizing. Um, I've worked for Mozilla and Salesforce and I worked for about four years doing consulting. So I've seen a lot of uh, use and abuse of different databases. Did you say two decades? Yeah. So I, it was oh almost goodness. two decades, 18 years I spent as a system administrator and database administrator. You didn't have your eyeballs pop out from that because that's that's pretty intense. It is pretty intense. And that's actually why I wanted to leave. Um, after my son was born, I realized that um, having a newborn that wakes up at all hours is so, so much easier than being on call. Um, because when the baby cries, you're like, okay, uh, food, diaper, comfort, medical attention. And granted, you're so kind of far gone that sometimes you forget and you're like, why is this baby crying? I don't know. And like, then you drive around for a while and they fall asleep and you're like, all oh, right, well, they need to fall asleep. 
Um, but with uh, a database problem, you, while it's super fulfilling to figure out a difficult database problem at three in the morning, I love it. I kind of love that detective work. But when the pager rings, you have to like wake up, you have to be alert enough to figure out what's wrong. You have to play detective. You have to look at those graphs and figure out where the anomalies are. Is that huge spike the symptom or the cause? If it's the cause of the problem, is it like legitimate traffic or is it someone trying to hack you? Or is there like a script that went wild and can I ignore it? Do I have to escalate it? Right? Like I'm not going to call my boss at three in the morning unless I have to. Um, and that's just a whole lot harder than why is the baby crying? So I kind of wanted to get out of the on-call component, but you can't really be a database administrator without being on call because it's an operational job. Um, so I reached out to some of my contacts from the MySQL world. And one of them was a product manager at MongoDB and was like, you should come be a product manager at MongoDB. And of course I had heard of MongoDB. I was in the databases world. I knew about NoSQL, but I didn't know a lot about it. I was just kind of like, well, nope, I'm, my data is relational. So I'm going to put it in there. And like, now I know that data is just data. It's not relational or not relational. And I asked some other, there are actually a bunch of former MySQL folks who work at MongoDB and some other friends in tech that worked at MongoDB. So I asked a whole bunch of people and product management has a ton of aspects to it. Um, some of which I was already doing, like talking about features or, you know, trying to figure out what a typical user might want. You know, all that consulting experience kind of came in handy. You're basically the balancing point between the users, the designers, and the engineers. And when you say users, it's not just current users, but like future users too. Wow. Oh, that's great. And and as you were doing all of the DBA work, that was in the, the MySQL space. Was that directly for MySQL or for another company? No, I never actually worked for MySQL, then Sun, then Oracle. Um, I was very much wanted to be separate because I was a fan of the product. And so I didn't want people to be like, well, she's an employee. Of course, she has to say nice things about it. <laughs> so it was very important for me to maintain that um, separation. Got it. So you you made your way to the, I guess what we call today tabular or non-relational world. How was that transition going from you know working with SQL, working with relational databases to working in a post-relational world? We have this uh, new higher technical training that we go through, which is like this boot camp, um, which uses the courses from the uh, the free MongoDB university that anyone can use, which is pretty cool. So I kind of already knew the database concepts. Like, you know, I didn't have to understand like what's replication. So some of those went faster and some of those went a little slower. And I'm like, okay, I know how relational databases do it, you know, like document modeling, but how does, right, schemas and stuff, how does MongoDB do it? So that was a little more learning. Um, and Frankly, it was the university courses made it awesome and easy. Um, and it was actually a frustrating process. Well, partly frustrating because some of the university challenges are really hard. This isn't something where you just like listen half, listen to the videos and then like click the questions and you're done. Um, but some of it was like some of the features I was like angry that I didn't have this automatically. Some of the out of the box features, particularly failover for replication. Right. You just like set up your replica set. And then if a machine dies, then, you know, Mongo just figures it out. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing. This is not something we have in the relational world. And it's not because of anything relational. It's because most of the relational databases were made before, you know, 2005. Um, when, you know, when you start to have this really distributed systems coming online. So. And I think to be fair, there are solutions in the relational world today, like MySQL has some clustering solutions that. Uh, but I don't think they were they were intended or I don't think they were written natively into the product. So it's definitely a different experience. Would you agree? Right. Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of third party stuff. MySQL cluster is actually written natively into the product, but it's a different product. 
So once you start using MySQL cluster, which is synchronous replication, you can't not, it's not like a drop in replacement. It may be a drop in replacement, but then like going back and whatever, it's just not something that people do. Um, and MySQL cluster isn't widely used for a lot of those purposes because it is just different. Um, and the other thing is, you know, I love that we have our own cloud service with Atlas, right? It's very rare that you get the uh, company that makes the product also making the cloud service. Wait, we have a cloud service? What? <laughs> <laughs> of course, you're referring to MongoDB Atlas, our database as a service available at cloud.mongodb.com. <laughs> Nick, did right. you have a question? Yeah, I was just going to ask a question around uh, the MySQL cluster. Uh, since this is the first time I've ever even heard of it, uh, is that even a part of their free offering or do you have to be like an enterprise customer to even use that? Uh, what a great question. Um, so yes, uh, MySQL cluster is free um, and open source, just like regular MySQL is. Um, it's just one of those things that it's not used a lot. It, it. When it's used, it's huge. It was actually made, I believe, for telecom. So it was made for high request synchronous stuff. It can do lots of transactions per second, but it's just not something that everyone uses because you download MySQL. You don't download MySQL cluster, that kind of thing. So continuing on the journey, you make your way to MongoDB. You go through the university.mongodb.com courses. And, and do you feel like you're, you're comfortable with the document database today? Yeah. I mean, there's always more to learn, but a lot of databases is knowing use cases and databases, right? So if you have a data set, like, yeah, it takes work to figure out what your schema is. But a lot of the work when you're talking about how do you program an application, that's just very similar. You just don't have to worry about things like an ORM. Um, I don't have to fight with people about queries, right? They might be like, how do you do this, you know, seven stage aggregation, but they're not like, okay, I've got these, you know, seven layer nested join. How do we do that? And it's really hard to wrap your brain around a declarative language. SQL is a declarative language. You declare what you want. You know, you say, select this from that, where that I want to see this. That's the most important thing. Select, show me this. And then you have to do all the stuff behind the scenes. Whereas with MongoDB, when you start to have complex queries, you use the aggregation pipeline and you have stages and stuff and you can, you know, debug and troubleshoot by only running a couple of the stages. And that's just not something you can do with SQL. Like if you wanted to change one thing in SQL, it can go crazy. So you, you mentioned MongoDB University to help get you up to speed with MongoDB. But overall, I mean, you spent, you said 20 years did I, in, the, in the relational database world. How was that transition really? I mean, you, you must have had relational databases stamped on your brain permanently, right? How, how do you transition into MongoDB like that? I don't know. I guess you just have to have an open mind. Um, you know, I still kind of think of sets of data sometimes. And so I have to be really careful not to think that way. Um, the thing about relational databases is that there's a, this mathematical formula, normalization on how do you get to, let's say, third normal form, which is what everyone calls normalization. There's a lot of different forms. Um, Boyce cod normal form breaks my brain. But you have this mathematical formula on how you reduce it to the, to a set of tables and a set of data. And anyone can say like, oh, you have a person and they have an address, but they may, maybe they have a couple of phones or whatever. So you have a, a person table and a phone table and an address table. And with MongoDB, there isn't one way to do it. There's any number of ways, depending on how you want to access it. If you almost never access the address, but are always accessing the phone number, then you want to store them together. 
Whereas you could store them separately if you're not really accessing them together and it's, you know, you're, you have all the data where you want and need it. Um, and so you have really have to think more holistically about the application as opposed to here's my data. Let me run some math on it to get my tables. Yeah. And, and I love the fact that MongoDB gives you the choice, right? You, you let not rules about the data make the decisions, but rather you let the usage patterns, the read, write profile of your application determine how you lay that data out a little bit more flexible. Right. Yeah. And if you do get it wrong, because like me, you've, you know, spent so much time in the, in, in a different way of doing things, or if you're just new and you, you don't know how to do it, it's easy enough to change because the schemas are flexible. So you can change the schema. If you realize like, oh, this is data that I had in a separate collection, but now I want it to be in an embedded array. You can just start adding that array to your documents and you, you know, pr make your code so that it uses, you know, it will look for the array and if the array exists, use it. And if it doesn't exist, go to this, go do look up on the collection. And so you can kind of take your time and migrating everything over and then change stuff. Um, so true. Love it. We, we, we all love MongoDB. Um, yes. So continuing on the, on the journey, now you're here at MongoDB and tell us a little bit about what your, your current world looks like. I know you mentioned Hackathon and, and uh, or Hacktoberfest. Yeah, so this year, MongoDB developed uh, the open source OFISH application. It's a joint project between MongoDB and WildAid, which is an environmental not-for-profit. There's this concept of marine protected areas, or MPAs, you may hear me say, that are, they're kind of like nature preserves. There are limits to the activities that people are allowed to do in that kind of, you know, area of, of the ocean or the waterway. Now on land, a nature preserve can have a boundary around it. You could have, you know, maybe a mountain or a river or a fence. But in the ocean, it's a little trickier because you can't just build a fence, right, in a sea or whatever. Um, and when you're 50 miles out at sea and there's just water all around you, you don't, might not know if you're in the boundaries of that MPA or not because all you see is water. So you kind of need to know, like, your GPS position. You have to know, like, am I in that polygon of the GPS of that, you know, of the polygon of that area of that marine protected area? Now, currently, the way that protection works is that it's enforced by agents who patrol the area in boats, and they write up anything that happens into a logbook. But this is a very manual, paper, tedious process. Um, you can lose a lot of information. I don't know if you've ever scribbled on a piece of paper and five minutes later can't read it. Well, now imagine it's pen or pencil, and it's been in the salt water air for a very long time. Um, you might forget about details or not ask for them. So we developed mobile apps for Android and iOS that allow these agents who are boarding the boats to report on lots of information, um, whether or not they're online. So we used Realm. Um, I think you've done a podcast on this. We used Realm Sync, which does automatic synchronization um, and automatic figuring out if you're offline and automatic retrying for when you, you go online. So it's not like something where if you send a text message and it didn't go through, it's like, do you want to try again with Realm Sync? You just kind of say, I want to submit my record and it gets submitted when you're close enough to land to get signal. Um, wow. Yeah. What a great use case. Uh, I can't think of a better use of the technology. So are you, are you looking at the set of capabilities that you have with paper and just mimicking those in the application? The cool part about mobile devices and devices in general is that you can go so much farther. So for example, for the mobile apps, they've got a camera right there. On their device so they can take pictures of things one of the things they can do is save drafts for later so maybe they have like five boats to board so they like board a boat snap a bunch of pictures board another boat snap a bunch of pictures and then they can write up their reports later and if you say something like seized 10 pounds of sea turtles right like 
what does that mean? How big is that? Is that five turtles? Is that 10 turtles? I don't know how much sea turtles weigh. So probably like 60 pounds. So it's probably way off. Um, so we baked that into the app too, that you could send pictures. You can, you know, annotate anything. The GPS location is right on your device. Even if you don't have signal, right. You still have a usually satellite GPS signal. Um, and so we could add a lot more fields to fill out and get a lot more rich information. The web app can do so much more too. It's really funny. Cause again, as a product person, we asked the wild aid folks, like, what would you want to see in your web app? You know, aggregating it up. What kind of reports do you want to see? And they were kind of like, well, compliance rate. And I'm like, well, what's that? Oh, number of boardings that had violations versus that didn't have violations. I'm like, okay, what else? And they're like, yeah, because right now they have paper. So when you have paper and you have to manually count things or manually enter it into a, an Excel spreadsheet, there's a limit to what you can do. Whereas here we can slice and dice the information in tons of different ways. We can work on sharing data really easily between different organizations. So there's really just a lot more you can do with this whole like, you know, the digital transformation is the buzzword. Um, and it's not just kind of a lift and shift from paper to digital, like, oh, now we are just digitizing our records so nobody has to type it in. It's automatically digitized. You're adding this functionality and capability, like we can add pictures, right? Or video or whatever. We didn't put video into the app, but there's just more you can do with digital stuff than with, you know, pen on paper. What a game changer for, for that agency. What's the name of the agency again? Wild Aid. Wild Aid. Okay. Yeah. And are people, other developers that want to get involved, is it an open project and can folks contribute? Yeah, it's an open source project. The GitHub repositories are at github.com slash wild aid. There's, I think, four or five different, there's five different repositories. There's a repository for the iOS app, the Android app, the Realm app. So there's a lot of Realm rules things like that. So all of the permissions and stuff are in Realm, as well as a lot of functions and triggers. For example, when you have that photograph that you take and you send it into the database, you know, one of the, one of the big questions is, should you put images in the database? You know, really the answer is it depends. But if you have a lot of images that are going to the database, you really want them separate because your backups are going to get huge and you don't really get a benefit of having the images in the database because you're not like sorting them or whatever. Um, so what we end up doing is we have a trigger that says, if you're inserting an, a record into Atlas, then look to see if the photo field has data in it. And if it does run this function. So that's what the trigger says. And the function is to send the photo to AWS into an S3 bucket and then come back with a URL. So now your document has, and then realm sync magically works to sync that URL and take away the photo. So now you're not bloating up your phone with these huge records that have all these photos in them. And we're using Realm triggers for that. So that's, I think that was four. And then the fifth repository is documentation. I can't wait to, to check out that app. And uh, as we mentioned, if you want to get involved, you want to take a look at what's going on there, check out the GitHub repository, github.com slash wildaid. There's a number of repositories under there. So we just heard about wildaid and what you've been doing for the OFISH application. Uh, but I know that you've been involved heavily with Hacktoberfest. Do you want to share a little bit about what that is uh, for people who might not be familiar with it? Sure. Hacktoberfest is a celebration of open source software that's run by DigitalOcean, which is a different company, during the month of October. Open source projects can participate by adding the Hacktoberfest category to their repository and having issues that contributors can work on and submit pull requests for. Contributors participate by submitting pull requests to the repository. DigitalOcean 
uh, awarded a t-shirt to anyone that had four quality pull requests, right? Like not just fixing four typos. Or participants could choose to have a tree planted instead of getting a t-shirt. Other entities are offering other swag. For example, we offered a badge, a digital badge in our forums if you submitted one PR to any open source app. And we have a special OFISH badge if you submitted to the OFISH app. So it wasn't particularly, it's not particularly a hackathon for DigitalOcean. It's for open projects and open source in general, hosted right. by DigitalOcean. Exactly. They want everyone right. to get involved in open source and their involvement is that they organize it. So they do all the infrastructure, including the t-shirts. Got it. So um, beyond just the badges that uh, MongoDB was offering, it, what, what else was MongoDB involved with as far as this whole event? Well, MongoDB itself is open source software. And so I think we all win when open source gets a boost. For me, it's not even about let's you know make MongoDB better or whatever. I love making OFISH better. I think I want to get more people involved in open source in general. And so for me, it was just this amazing opportunity to kind of let people into the light and see the wonders of open source and get more practice contributing to something. I actually learned a ton doing this as a project maintainer, as well as doing some coding myself. So it was really a fun thing. And that joy when you submit your first PR and you're like, oh my God, I did it. And like, no, I hope it's good. And it comes back and it's like, congratulations, it's merged. And you're like, woohoo. It's I really just that. amazing. So maybe I missed it, but uh, so was the project that you were working on for Hacktoberfest, the OFISH application, is that the, the PRs that you were merging and, and things like that? Or was it something else? Yeah, absolutely. So the lead developer, Andrew Morgan and myself, and, and funny enough, Andrew Morgan, I knew him from the MySQL world. We both were in the MySQL world together many eons ago. He was the lead developer, and so he did the iOS PRs, and I did the rest of them, uh, the Android and the web, the Node.js stuff, and the documentation. Great. Well, it's, it's fantastic to see this, uh, this amazing project come to life, participate in Hacktoberfest, and see so many awesome PRs, awesome developers getting involved. What was it like for you? Was this your first open source project that you, that you managed? Sort of. I think a lot of us have some public code out there on GitHub, and I have some stuff out there that was actually, I think, on Launchpad uh, back when we used that. So that will tell you how long ago that was. I've done some Nagios plugins and some, yeah, some Nagios plugins for MySQL. So that's technically like open source and out there. But if we're talking about stuff that other people, more than just one or two like friends or coworkers of mine contributed to, yeah, this was my first kind of managing, you know, a whole big project. I was actually a mentor in Google Summer of Code in 2007. So I do have some experience like mentoring people who I didn't necessarily choose to mentor, right? Like they came through by being interested in the project, right? Like, so kind of open to the public and getting whatever, as opposed to a friend of mine comes up and says, hey, can you mentor me on this? Right, that's a different story. So with Hacktoberfest, it's public. You don't know who's going to be asking to work on PRs and stuff like that. You don't know their experience level. Some people are very experienced and want to work on something meaningful or very experienced in one area, but want to work on something else. So when you understand things like algorithms and coding and, and one or two languages, and you want to work on another language, it's a little easier, right? I mean, that's actually my history, right? Uh, back at the turn of the century, when I was in college, I learned C, Java, Lisp, and I taught myself Perl and PHP. Um, 
And, you know, I'm not, but I'm not like a developer. I'm not a programmer. I did a lot of shell scripting. I did a lot of, you know, PHP, Python stuff. And, you know, a couple hundred lines of code is nothing compared to oodles and oodles, you know, modules and all that kind of stuff. Like if I had a little, you know, memory thing because I initialized variables, then never used them, it's not a problem in a script, right? But it's a, it's a problem in an application. So, you know, I understand how to code. I understand algorithms and stuff like that. I wouldn't necessarily say I'm a developer, but that's kind of cool because it helped me do this project where I had to look and say all of these different PRs in different languages, like I'm doing JavaScript, I'm doing Kotlin with Android. Um, You know, I did kind of take a look at the Swift UI stuff, you know, and it's like, I don't really, I, I wouldn't be able to sit down and code it, but I can read it, right? I could say, oh, this is calling this function. This is setting this to that. You know, I can kind of understand it. So that's, you know, sometimes you get that in Hacktoberfest. It's not all people just submitting their first PRs. Um, I think there's a there's a big myth there that it's like, oh, my first PR, but you really do get a mix. And what recommendations would you have? Let's say there's someone who wants to get a, a project started, wants to manage a, an open source project. Any recommendations for, for somebody just getting involved in something like this? Absolutely. Um, my first thing that I would say to them is, congratulations, now you're a people manager. That's what you're doing. And we're not just talking about obvious things like, well, if you don't know the other person, make sure to be gentle because you don't want to come across, you know, if you're like, oh, this code is terrible, right? You don't want people that could really crush someone and make them never want to contribute again. If someone submits a pull request that doesn't actually fix the issue, you don't just say, uh, yeah, you didn't test this, (laughs) right? Like you have to be a little more gentle, you know, and maybe you've had a bad day and on top of it, right, you get this you know, community member submitting code for the third time that doesn't build or doesn't do what the ticket said. And you're like, oh, please just test your code. You can't really have that outburst, right? Because you don't have a relationship with that developer, right? When you're working with your coworkers, you can have an outburst every now and then because you've built up this trust with them. That's not something you can do, right? Like you having a bad day, they don't know. This is their first day, the first time interacting with you. They don't know that you're not always like this. So, um, I think one of the biggest things in being a people manager, because I also have been a people manager before, um, you know, in my day job, is that people won't do things the way you do them. And now sometimes that's a drawback. There are times that I've gotten a pull request that, you know, didn't fix the issue it's supposed to fix, right? So they didn't do it the way I would. I would have fixed the issue. But often that's a good thing and it leads to discussion. So for example, we had two issues that were similar and it was assigned to two different people. Now one person misunderstood their issue and did the first person's issue. I had them talk it out with each other in the comments because they both use different ways of doing it. And we came to a mutual agreement on how to do it. So if I had just said, oh, we should do it the way person one did it, or we should do it the way person two did it, then you know nobody really learned anything. Whereas what I said was, why are we doing it this way versus that way? And what are the benefits and drawbacks? Which is also awesome because I'm learning things too. So this particular issue is about um, on-click versus link in Node.js. And I didn't know why you would use one over the other before this came up. Now, this is something that I do all the time as a product person but it's more important for someone who's an engineer and doing code on the project, who's been kind of promoted to the project maintainer. And you see this a lot with people who have been promoted to a manager of the team. You have to frame things as a problem, not a specific solution, because you would be surprised and amazed what people came up with. And that's their job, right? Like your job is to get the problem fixed and it has to be fixed in an efficient manner and all that kind of stuff. But the actual how, you leave that to the engineers. Um, and I think that's a, a mistake a lot of people make that's like, oh, you should do it this way. And it's like, well, if, if you want to do it that way, you can just code it yourself. Why do you have other people doing it? Um, I think another suggestion I have is for people to have an easy way to get the code and test the code, right? So GitHub makes it easy to get the code. You can just git clone. 
Um, with OFISH, there's a whole infrastructure behind it. And building your own OFISH instance is a great and awesome and free way to learn about how all the MongoDB components work together. Um, the realm parts like sync, serverless web hosting, authorization, functions and triggers, plus MongoDB Atlas database and charts. But building all those parts takes time. It takes me like two to three hours and I've built seven or eight of these. Not every contributor wants to invest that time. Maybe they want to spend half an hour fixing a bug, asking them to spend another couple hours building a test infrastructure. It's just going to take them more time and it's going to be a barrier to entry. So we set up a sandbox server where people can fill out a form and just magically get a login to the sandbox server. Nobody has to approve it. It just goes in. Now, there are limitations on that. Um, some issues, you do need your own instance to properly diagnose and fix an issue. Um, you know, we didn't give anyone global administrator permissions, for example. But it's not a perfect solution, but, you know, it's good enough to lower the bar for the people who wanted to work on smaller issues. And we did have several people build their own instances. And so I'm interested in, in that, if we could just double click on that, the, the instance. So is this a part of the, the project? Where do people go to get information on that, uh, that capability? If they want to dive into this, first of all, I, I can't recommend that enough. If you're a, a newer developer or even a, an advanced developer and you want to see how a project like this comes together, no better way than to dive into the code, take a look at how it's done, maybe even implement it yourself. But uh, I liked what you talked about when you said uh, folks can get their own instance automatically deployed. How do they do that? So before Hacktoberfest, we actually had some community contributions. We had an intern at MongoDB, and on her last day here, she saw and learned about the OFISH project. And she was like, I wish I could help. I wish I had known. And I was like, well, it's open source. And that was right at you know the end of August. And of course, September was a lot of preparation for Hacktoberfest. And one of the things we wanted to make sure we had was this sandbox server. And we kind of came up with a way to do it that worked with our schema and the way our application works. The way that our application works is that it's kind of divided up by agency. So if you have the Coast Guard, it could be one agency and um, the Galapagos National Park Rangers could be another agency. And so their data would be different based on what they survey and where they're patrolling. And unlike most applications where all your data is kind of to the user, right? Like my calendar is my data. I don't want to share it with you. This data is really shared among the agency because if I'm patrolling on a boat, I might want to know what my coworker patrolled last week. So we've kind of already split it up by agency and we have an agency administrator as well as a field officer as a special role for users in the application. And there's also a global administrator. So what we did was we had a sandbox server which was just an instance, just a regular instance, like you build an instance, I built an instance and I made it you know, available to the public. And what we did was we coded a web form. And by we, I mean, Brittany Lau, who was our amazing intern and volunteer who did this in September after she was an intern. So she was a complete volunteer on this. She coded a form that you would put in some data, like you put it in agency name. And because the agencies had to be unique, we just told people you can use anything, but we prefer you use your GitHub username because we know that's already unique. So my GitHub username is Shiri. I could type in Shiri in the form and, you know, my first name, last name and my email address and, you know, that kind of thing. And then I clicked and then a password and then I clicked submit and then it logged me in and I, the password and my email address were the way I logged into the system. So behind the scenes, it had some Realm triggers and stuff to create a Realm user for the permissions and to create a user in the database 
to do that. So it was a very kind of lightweight way. And then when you have your own agency, you can create a user in that agency. So there were a lot of features that people could use as well as, you know, of course, be on the app and submit records to that. So there's a lot that could be done by that. Now there's a lot that can't be done. Charts, you kind of really need your own backend to debug anything in charts. Um, but you know, most of the work could be done just by clicking a button and doing that. And they could do it when it was three in the morning, my time, nobody had to approve anything. So I think it was really lowering the barrier to entry is really what you want to do. Um, and that's, you know, so much of the advice I have is make it easy for people to do it and make it joyful for them to, to work on it too. You know, for me, most of the joy I get out of it is also just because it's such a good cause. You know, this isn't like, oh, I'm working on a stock ticker application. Like, yeah, okay, that's nice and it could be useful. But this is like, I'm working on an application that helps keep our oceans clean and our environmental ecosystem safe, right? So that people aren't taking, you know, fish that are too young out of the ocean, right? It's really, you know, a passion project here. So part of it is that. Um, part of it is I, I did a lot of work in September to chunk up some of the work. And I also had office hours where I would help people find something to work on. And I think part of the issue is that when you look at something, especially if you don't know the project, you could look at a title and a description and it looks really daunting, but it's not. For example, one person who came to office hours, you know, I, I was asking them, you know, what is it you like to do or what, what language do you code in? And we got to the point where I was like, oh, you know, what would be good for you is this localization management system. Now that sounds like a huge project, but really what it was, was a couple of scripts to look and see if there were any untranslated strings. And then if any of the translations that we had, French, Spanish, and Ukrainian, were missing any of those. So it's just a couple of scripts, but when, you know, the title is localization management system, it sounds like it's this huge thing and that nobody would ever take on. So I think that's part of it is have a place where people can go to ask you because you know the code the best. And so if somebody comes to you and says, these are the things that I'm good at, or these are the things that I want to learn, you can point them in the right direction. Outstanding. So you, you mentioned office hours. Um, this is all, this is all complete at this point. You've, you've closed down office hours for now. Yes, but I do have a way that people can contact me. So on our forums, you can click on my profile and contact me. I think you, there's a level you have to get to on the forums. You can't just create an account and message me right away. But I think it's something like 10 minutes of interaction on the site and like read five articles or something. So it's not a lot of interaction. It's, it just helps reduce the spam, but that will send an email to me with your message. And so if people want to do that, I can set, I can set up times or we can kind of talk asynchronously. I do have a couple more ideas for project maintainers. Um, it's so important to remember that it's a two-way street, right? Volunteers contribute work to the repository and you have to do more work too. It's different work for the maintainers. So, you know, I was talking about lowering the barrier to entry. I looked at a few other repositories to see if I could do some quick fixes for other repositories for Hacktoberfest, kind of like giving back. But with so many issues, you need to have a deep knowledge of the code to do anything. So you'll have a much better time if you chunk up the work. One of the most desired features for our mobile apps was dark mode. I know, I know. Everybody loves dark mode. But in this case, when you're on a boat in broad daylight, it's actually something necessary to use the app. You can't see if you don't have dark mode. So I broke it up into chunks. Now it wasn't perfect because I didn't know all of the components we needed to change. Like I said, I'm not a huge developer, right? So I just did it by app screen, right? Like you go to the boarding record and there's a screen for the vessel information and a screen for the captain and crew information. So I just kind of made one ticket per screen and just said, okay, this, this page needs dark mode. This page needs dark mode. So it wasn't perfect, but it worked well enough. And so I made a ton of tickets and each contributor did some of the work. And then we ended up with dark mode on Android. 
The other problem is that dependencies can be rough. So on Android, somebody was like, okay, I'll work on the little switch to toggle it to dark mode on and off. And as soon as somebody took the ticket, I got excited. I'm like, okay, I'm going to make this so that I'm going to make all those tickets, all those dependent tickets. And I said that it was dependent on that, but then people started putting different colors in and whatever. And I should have waited until the first person did it so that we had a kind of a library of colors and a way of doing it before setting that up. So you kind of want to have some ideas of what you want to do, but you don't want to put everything out there when there's dependencies. The last thing I would say for maintainers is to remember why you're doing this. If you're doing it just to get, you know, free pull requests and free work, then you're going to end up being disappointed. When I get a pull request, it's awesome to say yes. And it's heartbreaking to say no. Don't get to a point where you grudgingly like just say yes and gleefully say no, like, ha, ah, it's not perfect. Or like, oh, I guess I can accept it, right? Don't be a stickler for a hundred rules. If the style isn't perfect, you can accept it and you can fix it yourself. Or you could say, hey, if you change the style on this, then, then I can accept it, right? You definitely don't want to compromise too much, but there can be things that aren't perfect that you accept and either fix later or just leave as it is. This isn't homework. It's totally okay to give hints. If somebody queried use, using the wrong function, I'll explain what they did and what issues that might cause and then say, hey, what about using this other function? Here's how it works. It takes an X and Y and returns A and B. And then I'll link them to that code in the examples. It's more work on my part, but I'm more familiar with the code base and the contributor can see that I'm on their team. I'm invested in helping them do the right thing. I'm not just rejecting their PR and saying, oh, use this other function or just, you know, this function is bad, right? I'm really trying to help them out. Now I say I'm not a developer because I don't know how code reviews usually go. I hate sending PRs back, but ultimately I hope I'm enabling the developer to learn more than just the code. I hope folks learn why we do things and that decisions aren't necessarily made lightly. There are reasons. So you have to be prepared to do that kind of mentorship. What a great nurturing style. I love that. And uh, you're, you're making me want to contribute more to OFISH. I've already got a couple of PRs that have been accepted, but I want to get back in there and, and work more on this great project. Well, if you were a uh, first-time developer, one of the things I think that's important to know is that it's really all about relationships, right? It's very exciting to have someone who knows you know, everything they're doing and, and submits all the perfect PRs or whatever, but that's a unicorn. It doesn't happen. Contributing to open source is a great opportunity, not just to show off what you know, but also to learn and grow as a developer, no matter how much you know, whether you're a beginner or experienced. But more than that, you can build relationships with other people. Go to office hours if they exist. Go to that chat forum and ask people questions. Make use of all the communication opportunities you can. Well, we've actually gone over what we typically do. We, we like to keep these episodes short so we can fit them into a 30-minute segment. But um, I've really enjoyed the conversation. What's next for you at MongoDB and, and where does uh, OFISH go from here? OFISH is completely open source and right now it's all volunteer. So we went from having paid contributors right within MongoDB to being completely open source. I'm still running it for now in my spare volunteer time. And it's just very exciting. It's going to go to production soon. We have a couple of issues that are gating that. We want to make sure that it's perfect before it goes into development. And the Wild Aid folks have been getting different governmental agencies to uh, test it out and use it. Um, it's been a little hard because COVID means that there aren't a lot of people going out on patrol as much as they were. But that's going to change. What's next for me is I'm going to be working on the Developer Hub, which is at developer.mongodb.com as a product manager to make it better and amazing. Yeah, that's where all our articles go. We even publish the podcast episodes in a couple of different formats there, the transcriptions get there and uh, you can actually check out the podcast episodes on the developer hub. 
It's where you can find all the user groups. It's where you can find the forums. Um, if you're a student or an educator, there are sections there for you as well. Fantastic. So once again, developer.mongodb.com. Where can people find you online? Do you participate in social media? I do. The first place to look would be the username Shiri, almost wherever you are. Uh, that's my username on GitHub. It's my username on Twitter. And spell it? S-H-E-E-R-I. Do you get Sherry a lot? I do. It happens. You sure it's not Shiri C? I, I believe I've seen on certain accounts Shiri C. On Twitch, I think it's Shiri C because Shiri was taken. And Shiri was taken on Instagram as well. But that uh, that uh, my Instagram is for personal stuff. So it's just pictures of my kids. It's not go. anything <laughs> exciting. But Twitter is where I spend most of my time. I, I have an account on Facebook, but I don't really use it. So Awesome. So at Shiri on Twitter. Shiri, thank you so much for spending some time with us. It's been a great conversation. I really enjoyed learning more about MySQL, your background, your journey to MongoDB, and and OFISH, this amazing project. Once again, where can folks go for more information on OFISH? The best place to go would be our documentation site, which is at wildaid.github.io. That's W-I-L-D-A-I-D.github.io. And that will link to the different repositories as well as how to contribute and all that kind of stuff. Great. Well, Sherry, thanks once again. And uh, have a great day, everybody. Great. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe. Have a question or a suggestion for the show? Visit us in the MongoDB community forums at community.mongodb.com. <laughs>